Pluto Press is one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. Sick of Amazon dominating the audiobook market, they have developed a new list of audiobooks for some of their most popular titles, now available to buy directly from the publisher. Pluto Audio includes the classic Lost in Work by Amelia Horgan, a book that Grace Blakely called Fascinating and Absorbing, a corrective to the widespread view that anyone can find fulfilment through their job. And also The Brutish Museums by Dan Hicks, which was one of the New York Times best art books of the year, and which helped spur museums across the West into returning stolen artefacts to their countries of origin. If you buy at least one audiobook from plutobooks.com before the end of December, you are in with a chance of winning one of three sets of the entire list. Go to tiny.one forward slash PTO audio to discover Pluto Audio and download groundbreaking radical ideas to listen to on the go. The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to another episode of Interregnum with Richard Seymour. I spoke to Richard about Lula's victory in Brazil's presidential election. We talked about why Lula's margin of victory was so narrow, how it is that Jair Bolsonaro maintains such substantial support despite Brazil's poor economic performance and his disastrous handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. We also talked about what to expect from Lula's third term in office, both domestically and regarding Brazil's foreign policy. Today's episode is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Haymarket Books, who have lots of great left-wing titles, perfect for listeners like you. One that you might like is Struggle Makes Us Human, Learning from Movement for Socialism by Vijay Prashad. In this collection of interviews with international solidarity organiser Frank Barat, renowned author and activist Vijay Prashad shows that the path towards hope and liberation lies in looking closely at myriad, undercovered struggles being waged all across the world by workers in countries such as India, Kenya, Peru, Tunisia and Argentina. Struggle Makes Us Human is an incisive and inspiring call from one of the international left's foremost thinkers to look beyond capitalism and chart a roadmap for a planet ravaged by pandemics, climate crisis and wars. You can find Struggle Makes Us Human at haymarketbooks.org where readers in the US and the UK can receive free shipping on orders over $25 or £20 respectively. And now to today's interview. So we're speaking a few days after Lula's victory in Brazil's presidential election, in which he defeated the widely reviled Jair Bolsonaro, who at the time of recording has not formally conceded defeat, although his chief of staff has indicated that his administration will not contest the result. Some of Bolsonaro's supporters, notably some Brazilian truck drivers, blockaded roads in protests at a result that they uh, regard as, or or at least pretend, is the result of electoral fraud. 
But the threat of a coup or a sustained effort to contest the result now seems to have receded. At the beginning of this year, Lula was some 30 points ahead in the polls and was recording healthy leads just a few months ago. But in the final result, Lula won by less than two percentage points within the margin of error. Some commentators have argued that given the extent of Bolsonaro's efforts and and that of his supporters to suppress Lula's predominantly working class vote uh, and the amount of dark money that Bolsonaro's team deployed during the campaign, uh, Lula actually did rather well to win. Um, Others have suggested instead that this election shows the degree of strength and social depth of the Brazilian right in spite of the defeat and that the defeat may well be a temporary setback rather than anything more definitive. Where would you place the emphasis when making sense of uh, of the result? Oh, uh, it has to be all three. But look, I mean, if you're running a campaign, then you place the emphasis on your campaign. Um, and uh, if you're on the left, then you want to be you're interested in what could the left have done differently, because that's what we can learn the most from. I was very surprised to see Jeremy Corbyn claiming that Lula won not through triangulation, but through mass working class organization, which... Frankly, like a lot of left-wing Anglophone commentary in Brazil, is pious nonsense. There is, just to be clear, I mean, there's no necessary contradiction between mobilizing a mass base and triangulating. Lula campaigned from the center. He appointed as his VP candidate a blue-blooded former conservative uh, rival in in the PDSB, which is a center-right party, Geraldo Alckman. He gave some pretty good speeches, but his campaigning theme was basically uniting Democrats, as he put it, against totalitarianism. He campaigned on reversing the more extreme of Bolsonaro's policies, but he was really reassuring middle-class voters and the banks and investors that he wasn't going to do anything very wildly radical. Certainly nothing even like what he did back in the 2000s. So that's triangulation in a nutshell. The left gets words and gestures and symbols. The right gets deeds. So the strategy, as far as I can tell, hasn't gone very well. And it's not just that he got... 5% lead in the first round and did much worse in the northeast than he expected. But it's also that when that happened, his response was to go further to the right and get uh, Alkmin to go around wooing agribusiness leaders who basically are fanatically pro-Bolsonaro at the moment. So in the end, he gets whittled down to a one-point lead in the second round. So that went badly. Doesn't mean that there was a magical other strategy that would have done brilliantly well. We don't know that. You know, we're always in the domain of speculation here. It was possible to run a populist insurgent campaign, but that's just not him. It's also fair to say that he was up against a machinery that included the Bolsonaro secret budget, the use of taxpayer money to bribe allies and woo constituencies, uh, extraordinary amounts of violence by Bolsonaro's highly armed base, um, the attempt by a top pro-Bolsonaro police official to derail the election by ordering the traffic blocks in Lula voting areas on the day could not have been more overt and crude and obvious. And then, of course, Bolsonaro was protected even while he was threatening a coup supported by groups of businessmen, elements of the military and police, but he was protected by the Centrio, which is, you know, like this uh, sort of corrupt, nepotistic, centrist bloc uh, that basically runs things in Parliament. I say centrist, I mean, realistically, we're usually talking about centre-right, quite hardline neoliberal. So this wasn't straightforwardly a free election. It was one in which there were major state apparatuses trying to stop a free election, 
It is true also, you know, there was an appalling resilience in Bolsonaro's support in the country, despite, you know, the economy being in a mess, GDP plummeting, the policy of strategic virality, you know, causing people deliberately to get infected with COVID in order to build up herd immunity and keep business going. All that stuff hurt Bolsonaro, but nowhere near as much as it should have done and looked like it might do just months ago. And what we can see here is that the core of Bolsonaro's support has been trending towards growth. You know, over time, evangelical churches have doubled in their numbers over the last couple of decades. They're projected to grow to about 40% of the population um, by 2030. The ownership of guns has tripled during Bolsonaro's reign. Private militias are growing. Uh, Militaries never had so much power in the government. Agribusiness was given everything at once, including, crucially, that indigenous land claims are now handled by the Department of Agriculture, which basically speaks for agribusiness. And then, really importantly, agribusiness has been doing very well out of soaring commodity prices, you know, because Brazil exports a lot of meat and orange juice and coffee and so on. So, you know, the the, the core is uh, building up. One thing uh, that's worth mentioning is that although Bolsonaro really built up his support among the wealthy and affluent, and this was a much more class-polarized election than 2018, there are still parts of the so-called new middle class, basically people who were levered out of poverty by uh, Workers' Party social programs, who have rallied to Bolsonaro. And, you know, they've been experiencing since 2014 a really a sudden block on their upward mobility they become a lot more precarious and they blamed the workers party for that and you can read ethnographic work which describes some of the circulating affects around this the fear of declining social respect rising alternative sexualities fond myths about how stable and crime-free the days of military rule were among people who never lived in those days by the way and a lot of that hinges on sexuality and this is something i really think the left needs to urgently integrate more into its analysis because the spiritual war against communism as they called it was largely predicated on this idea that gender ideology trans people gay sex and so on are being foisted on brazil's impressionable youth and those terrors i think need the application of some kind of marxist psychoanalytic idiom in a way you know you could apply some some of the reikian stuff about fascism's relationship to the family and sexual repression um but we also need to take into account close uh, to male fantasies the figure of red rosa and the menace that she represented to the anti-communist freikorps and the way in which that overlaps with the contemporary figure of the red-haired, wild-eyed social justice warrior, you know. So, I mean, we need to get to grips with the sexual terrors that are somehow wired into the experience of class decline, frustration, and economic precarity. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been slightly strange how little discussion there's been of the, the weaponization of the, of the gender question in this election, because that seemed to be much more talked about in the case of the election in in Chile, whereas in in the case of Brazil, I mean, I you know personally seen very little discussion, at least outside of Brazil, um, about the, the salience of that and and how that's been used by the Bolsonaro campaign. Um, just going back to your point about the way Lula's victory was received on the left outside of the country. Why do you think there has been this tendency to overstate the radicalism of, of Lula and, and to, to downplay the extent to which he has, as you say, triangulated and, and even tried to make nice with the evangelical churches to some extent as yeah. well? Yeah, 
Yeah, that's and that's very important. Uh, we'll come back to that, I suppose. But um, I think partly there's a terrible sentimentality on the British left. We're so susceptible to gestures and symbols. So that's one part of it. Uh, I hate to relitigate all battles, but, you know, I, I just I will just say this. Look, in the context of British leftism, Keir Starmer would not have won the leadership of the Labour Party were it not for the willingness of a large part of the left to be gullible about symbols and about evocations of, you know, past glories. You know, uh, Sir Keir was um, credited with, um, you know, the work he did on the McDonald's trial and so on, as if that had any bearing on what he is now. And I, I think that there's an element of that going on here. I think there's also the fact that there's also laborism and the way that left-wing labor politicians will often talk up and misleadingly uh, flatter politicians who have actually been very bad for, for their people. Like, uh, I remember when the British left uh, and labor left particularly were rallying to Syriza after it had already capitulated to austerity and moved to the right of its predecessors on issues like foreign policy and immigration. And so I think there is this tendency. Uh, and, but more but generally, presumably there's also just a desperation to see victories as well, given the, you know, the sort of pretty desperate state of, uh, of, of the world right now. Yeah, desperate for victories. There's an undercurrent of relief here. But also, let's face it, Lula was locked up. He was locked up for something that, as far as we can tell, he didn't do. Um, you know, there was an attempt to um, destroy the Workers' Party by the most uh, fanatical uh, elements of the far right, um, who are becoming very powerful. And, uh, you know, so Lula as a figure, who is very charismatic, I think is, you know, capable of uh, summoning a lot of loyalty. I remember when he got out of jail... He was doing the rounds, he was doing interviews with people, and basically he was positioning himself very clearly on the left, though he's never been anything but a moderate. And I think that good politicians are capable of that kind of triangulation. So, And the left is some, sometimes overly susceptible to it. And I, I suppose, in a way, there's also the alternative that you can become a little bit sectarian in in logic you can neglect the fact that the workers party is a mass working class party and that for it to be mobilized in a way that defeats the far right is not insignificant even if the the win was narrow and disappointing even with all the mistakes made by lula even if um, centrism is unavailing nonetheless that kind of organized class power is really really important and it's a bulwark against fascism I mean, there seems to be quite a lot of realism from Lula's voters. I mean, you know, I saw yeah. one Lula supporter who was quoted as saying after the result that the last few years have been barbaric, it's been maddening. I don't expect Lula's government to be revolutionary, but I hope it will provide an ounce of hope, uh, a moment to breathe, which seems a pretty, pretty, you know, sound reading of the situation right now. So although the prospect of, of, of a coup or anything like it seems to have been averted uh, for the moment, do you still think that was a real possibility? And, and what do you think the right in opposition will be like? Will it very much go in the direction of, uh, you know, acting as the, the quote unquote resistance and, and contesting the legitimacy of the, of the new government over the medium term? Well, that's a really good question, because you, you, the, the temptation is to think that if it didn't happen... Was Bolsonaro bluffing all along just to excite his base? 
you know, I think he was actually serious, but I think what he wanted was to steal the election with the blessing of the military and uh, top elements of the police. Um, and obviously he didn't, in the end, feel he had the support for a real challenge once that had failed. I think had Trump still been in office, it might have gone differently because Biden, as you know, moved instantly to recognize Lula. He sent mm, over a diplomat. 20 minutes after the result, he, he yeah. congratulated him, yeah. And and but that's that's basically an expression of a lot of an economic and financial power, and a coup in that context might have seriously hurt Brazil's ruling class interests. If, for example, there were sanctions or something like that, so I think that would have affected how the Brazilian military and the Centrio perceived matters. And Bolsonaro's right wing allies, you'll have uh, noticed, immediately hopped too, like these right wing governors, recognizing Lula's win. The thing is. The question for me was always, what are Bolsonaro's supporters going to do? Because these people are mad, they're armed, and um, they, you know, they were primed for uh, 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 the election being stolen. Bolsonaro told them that in a clean election, he would win 60% of the vote. There's evidence that a minority of voters, who probably are a majority of Bolsonaro's voters, the hardcore, do not believe in the integrity of the electoral system at all. So we've seen, in the last few days, we've seen the roadblocks by Bolsonaro supporters. We've seen them disrupting energy and food supplies. They're heavily armed. They have links with the paramilitaries in places like Sao Paulo. They're dangerous. But it turns out, and here we can genuinely breathe a sigh of relief, they were making themselves very unpopular. They got in the way of the football fans who broke through the blockades to get to their matches. Ultimately, Bolsonaro had to come out and ask them to stop. So this brings us back to the question, what's the plan? Why, having raised insurgent energies to that pitch, is he backing off for now? And I suspect that he rightly calculates that he'll be back in four years if he wants to be. I suspect he knows that Lula will be very weak, will get the blame for the weak economy, will demoralize his base. I think he knows that he's already successfully loaded the state with his allies and his relatives. Uh, he's tilted the balance heavily in favor of his constituencies, and Lula will not challenge their power. So I would expect, based on that record, that the Liberal Party in Parliament will sabotage and incite Lula at every turn. Um, will sabotage Lula and incite the base at every turn. And I would expect that there will be moments of proto-insurgency and Bolsonaro will have the opportunity to incite riots and violence um, in the coming years. The other thing is, I think we shouldn't overstate the rational actor part of this. There's also a sense in which what's happening here is a kind of collective... Uh, sort of partial decivilization, licensed madness, as uh, J.G. Ballard puts it in his novel Kingdom Come, uh, because Bolsonaro is a bit mad and people like that, and the base want the liberty to go a bit mad, to, you know, murder some people, bully some people, break some laws, be unaccountable and irrational as part of a kind of tribal pact. And so some of this isn't about rational calculation, it's about feeling your way around these emotions opening your unconscious to them and working with their ebb and flow. And I think that that's what people like Bolsonaro are fairly good at. You've mentioned, of course, that Bolsonaro has fostered certain constituencies. He's been very good for agribusiness and so on. But in terms of the, the broader public, I mean, his, his rule has been on the economic front, a bit of a disaster. The handling of COVID-19 was, was a, you know, a catastrophe. Um, and I forget who it was who made this point. But I recall recently listening to an interview in which it was pointed out that in contrast to Erdogan in, in Turkey or Narendra Modi in, in India, it's, it's really striking how little economically Bolsonaro really does for his base. 
Do you agree with that? And, and how, how do you think he, he has sustained that degree of support in spite of the failure to, to provide much material reward for supporting him? Well, if it's okay, I'd like to link this into um, the question of the evangelical churches who I mentioned before, because um, it seems to me that a large part of what Bolsonaro offers is, um, I guess, what you could call a kind of ontological security. Usually, Bolsonaro's supporters are described as the bull, bullet, and Bible benches, right? Agribusiness, arms industry, military, and evangelical churches. And it's the evangelical churches that, in addition to some of the paramilitaries and sort of armed, uh, you know, armed base, they're, they're the ones who are really the popular wing. And uh, they're really crucial. Bolsonaro made sure that his ally, the evangelical pastor Andre Mendonca, was appointed to uh, the Supreme Court. He appointed the evangelical pastor Damaris Alves as his minister for women, family and human rights, or the better to fight this spiritual war on communism. So, you know, Brazil is historically Catholic, but it's got a secular constitution. The Catholic Church isn't challenging that. The evangelical churches are. They're the ones that are canalizing this uh, destructive energy. They're out for uh, an all-out culture war. And I think that evangelicalism in Brazil is probably quite similar to the white evangelicalism that Tad DeLay describes in the United States. He writes that, you know, overt doctrinal commitments of evangelicalism, like substitutionary atonement, wherein, you know, Christ's achievement on the cross is to take punishment for our debased condition, or the belief in hell, or anything like that. All that may be sincerely held, but like all beliefs, they are after-the-fact rationalizations for the demands of the unconscious register. And in this case, they work as a kind of tribal signifier, a kind of totem or fetish. And the function of a fetish is disavowal. So there's this unwritten rule, which in this case is kind of tribal superiority, an axiom which justifies and grounds all the rationalizations and self-serving stories of the community as organized around a perverse sociopathic religious leader. And DeLay tells us about how pervert rulers who co-opt the submissive tendencies of the neurotic public, obviously he's using these Lacanian categories, um, perverse rulers co-opt the submissive tendencies of the neurotic public because the, the neurotic is a slave to the big other, ensure their active participation in their own subordination through the deployment of, and this is crucial, he says, the deployment of psychotic language. So the ruler is not uh, psychotic, but uses psychotic language. Um, and this is something, I think that's a, a pretty good formulation of the libidinal logic of Trumpism and Bolsonarism. And the growth of that kind of evangelicalism, even though it isn't quite identical to the white evangelical church in the United States, it's worth saying that Brazil tails the United States in some important ways, particularly the Brazilian right. Um, many of the memes and uh, tropes of the uh, Brazilian far right come straight from the arsenals of Trumpism. Um, so uh, I think the growth of evangelicalism in, in Brazil is could arguably be one vector for Americanization in that respect. Do you think there's also a more sort of prosaic element to this? I mean, you know, I read an interesting article uh, recently by Rodrigo in which he, you know, describes the way in which the evangelicals, for ordinary people, they provide a social life. That they're there to sort of help with with childcare. They're there for people who are struggling with addiction, even if their solutions to to such problems are are, are not real ones. At least they they provide some some hope and something to do. At least. 
and that that's something that the left can't compete with. And also it just means there's so many channels through which the right's messaging comes to people. It comes from the top, it comes from from Bolsonaro himself, it comes through the churches, it comes through the army of, of, of social media influencers that the Brazilian right has and which the left really, really lacks. Yeah, I think you have to, um, certainly I think the social channels are very, very important. I mean, the part of that uh, where we're talking about churches providing childcare and a social life. In a society where social life is being decimated and where there is a certain amount of public squalor and where economic opportunities uh, are beginning to dry up, the existence of churches is quite important. And therefore, it's also quite important what kind of churches you have. So this brings us to the next point. Yes, the you know the evangelical churches are providing all these services and all this security, but really, why the evangelical churches? Why not the traditional Catholic churches? So, so you know you you have to therefore to get down to the specifics of the evangelical doctrine and its appeal. And you know I think that's where it's quite legitimate to start talking about the libidinal economy of this sort of stuff. One of the things that the churches seem to promise is that through engaging with the faith and you know doing the right things that this will lead to you know riches here on earth, which is is obviously rather different to the message of the Catholic Church. Yes, although uh, I don't think the Catholic Church is um, necessarily opposed to worldly riches, but yes, um, <laughs> no, you, I mean any, for, anyone who's been to the Vatican could <laughs> would, would see that. Uh, uh, no, but but in all seriousness, I think you've got a point there that um, the evangelicals their credo would be very appealing to the so-called aspirational middle class who are thriving for distinction in relation to their peers. And this version of evangelical politics seems to um, be perfectly comfortable and adjacent to that, and indeed to encourage that. So the conservative middle class would find quite a lot to vibe with um, in evangelicalism. When thinking about how Lula will govern, the comparisons that are usually made are, are of course, with his first two terms in office from uh, 2003 to 2010. Um, but do you think that maybe a more relevant comparison is actually with uh, with Dilma Rousseff, uh, who led the PT government from 2011 until her, her impeachment in 2016? And of course, she was in power during a time when economic conditions were much less benign, you know, when the fallout from the global financial crash had really started to bite. So conditions that were much harder than in the earlier period when when Lula was in power. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we know that Dilma seriously weakened her appeal by going for austerity, and that created the social protests which the far-right anti-communist wedge initially grew in and formed the conditions for her ouster in a soft coup. And there was actually a paper by a couple of economists at the United Nations University, which details the way in which trade liberalization, beginning in the 1990s and then continued under Lula, led to these regional economic shocks. And then that, combined with uh, Rousseff's austerity measures, which exacerbated the feelings of insecurity among middling layers, created the conditions for the far right to flourish. Now, Lula is an opportunist and uh, i mean i remember in 2015 he was saying you know we have to support austerity the following year when rusev was being impeached he was saying austerity had to end so the country could return to a growth strategy the difficulty he faces of course you know his victory is breathing space but 
for what? The political space for austerity is, is in a way much smaller now than it was back in the 2010s. At the same time, the economic space for major stimulus and infrastructure investment along the lines of the Biden administration isn't that great. So, you know, you might expect morbid symptoms, stalemate, oscillating between spending and restraint. Um, I was trying to work out whether Lula would benefit from soaring commodity prices because, you know, you would expect that if commodity prices are so high as they are, that this could kickstart the Brazilian economy again. The problem is... It appears that the way the economy is structured means that the wealth is actually just being accumulated in certain regions and among the affluent and the rich, while the poor are literally going hungry. Like, I think half the population can't afford to eat every meal. So GDP growth is not going to be the thing that enables Lula to do anything about that. He would have to redistribute. Um, apparently, he's going to ask Parliament for $39 billion to outline some basic social aid, some basic social spending. But the question is, is Parliament as currently constituted going to go along with that? Are they going to obstruct it? Are they going to sandbag it? And where is the money going to come from, if not growth? Is it going to come from tax rises on the wealthy? And, you know, who's going to put up resistance to that? So the dilemmas that he faces, in some ways, they're worse than those faced by Rousseff. Rousseff could potentially have not chosen austerity and navigated her way through the crisis and been quite popular and won re-election. So, uh, you know, the, the situation now is, is is even more precarious, I would say. Mm, yeah, I mean, I, I guess an additional factor is also the weakening of the Chinese economy, uh, which, of course, has had, had a huge appetite for Brazilian exports uh, hitherto. Hither yes. So the recent wave of electoral victories in Latin America has led some commentators to talk of a, a pink tide 2.0. What do you make of that and how do you see the two waves, if it's even right to compare them, given that many of the new left-wing governments in Latin America seem to lack the degree of popular mobilisation that characterised the first wave, especially in the cases of Bolivia and Venezuela? It, you know, it doesn't feel right now like it's a moment where it's straightforwardly the left that is on the march because you know as you've described here you know the the right in spite of this setback with this election uh, result um, seems to be advancing in other ways and I should say including electorally in Brazil with uh, victories at the state level. Yeah absolutely it's a very different situation I don't want to understate, understate the degree of popular mobilization. Certainly in Chile, um, you know, there's been two years of social explosion. Yes. Um, yeah. I don't think that's negligible. And that uh, made a big difference to the result. But the Chilean constitution was still defeated. So, uh, you know, whereas when uh, Chavez changed the uh, Venezuelan constitution and when he... I mean, obviously, he had to face off a coup, right? Um, so he did face some difficulties, but he never had any problems winning popular majorities. And Bolivia, it's a more complicated case because there was mass working class mobilization, but Evo Morales more or less governed within economic orthodoxy, um, to, you know, while democratizing uh, uh, the state somewhat and uh, advancing indigenous rights. But I would say maybe the difference between now and then, first of all, is that the far right is much stronger. Second of all, that the uh, old guard is much weaker and much more precarious. And that in these campaigns, 
you don't see the presence to the same extent of mass working class mobilization. So, you know, there there have been these surges. So, for example, in Chile, it started with protests over um, public transport charges, and that wired into a a social media campaign, uh, precipitated what you might call a kind of social contagion, a political contagion, where the thing just spread like wildfire very suddenly. So it wasn't like there were these waves of struggle over many years, as in Bolivia, for example, where you know there were campaigns against water privatization, there were unionization campaigns you know, using innovative tactics, and over several years they built up the base for a near insurrection in 2005. It wasn't like that at all. But also, I, I should just say that I'm not that pessimistic in, in one sense, in that when you look at the circumstances in Chile and Colombia, and to a much lesser extent in Brazil, when you look at the circumstances, it's uh, it's clear that the left has grown um, in recent years, less so in Brazil, obviously, and that the growth of the left has to do with its offering some popular solutions to real problems, and that the left is now engaging with things that it kind of ignored in the 2000s. Like the old pink tide was very tied to extractivism, right? And it didn't really challenge the fundamental problem of the drugs war. Uh, I am very impressed by the new leadership in Colombia. Uh, I don't, you know, I know that it's going to be very difficult, but he is talking about tackling the drugs war and about dealing with uh, climate change in a very serious way. And I think that's great. So there are some things to be very uh, optimistic about, not because of the leaders themselves and not because, uh, you know, the balance of forces per se, but because it there are shifts, deep socio-cultural shifts taking place where suddenly these things are sayable. I think that matters. As we've already touched upon, Lula's victory was welcomed by uh, governments around the world, including, uh, as we talked about, Joe Biden, uh, also Emmanuel Macron and, and, and many others. Presumably, the fact that very centrist politicians welcomed his victory quite effusively speaks to the fact that they remember his prior term in office and are therefore not at all spooked by the prospect of Lula uh, being in power. And perhaps internationally, there is also less hostility to somewhat more interventionist economic policies than was the case in the early 2000s. And furthermore, much of the Brazilian elite, as discussed, has has thrown its support behind Lula. Do you think relations with states such as the US and Western European governments will remain on such friendly terms? I think they will, because one of the things we tend to forget is that while Lula has been slimed by the international press in recent years... In the 2000s, he was hugely popular internationally. Blair loved him. Bush liked him. He was uh, adored by the Financial Times, The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, etc. There were always right-wing axe grinders who detested him. That's true. But he was a sufficiently third-way politician who managed to deliver exactly what third-way, middle-of-the-road politicians would want to do in the United States and Europe, which would be to deliver things for the poor without fundamentally changing any of the political or economic arrangements in the society. I think possibly you're also right that if Lula wanted to engage in economically interventionist policies, there's now much more space to do it, because he can say, well, look at Biden. You know, it's no longer a radical thing 
It's something that's done by the hard center of American politics. So I would expect that um, Lula is going to have good relations with so-called Western states, from the United States to Western Europe to Israel. Do you not think it's possible that Lula's determination to plot a pretty independent course in foreign relations might be an issue because yeah. it's clear about maintaining friendly ties with China, you know, a huge trading partner for, for Brazil apart from anything else. Uh, but he wants to steer a middle course between China and the United States. Do you think that in the, in the context of a deepening Cold War, Lula might be forced to choose by the US and, and the US might quite aggressively insist on Brazil becoming part of its, uh, its camp? Well, it's interesting because they haven't really tried to stop, in any serious way, the deepening regional integration in Latin America before. And my sense of that is because an integrated Latin American market is probably quite a good thing for the United States, even if it means that they're more politically independent and so on. Also, the United States has a very odd relationship with the People's Republic of China. I, I, I of course, agree with you that there is a sort of neo-Cold War air. Uh, circulating here. But still, the United States has this sort of economically codependent relationship with China. So it's not like the Cold War with Russia to that extent, because Russia was not important to American capitalism at all. They would have been quite happy for Russia to fail economically, um, so they wouldn't be able to fund uh, guerrilla campaigns and build up their own spheres of influence. Whereas I think they desperately need China to succeed in economic terms. So the neo-Cold War that's being waged, partly it's about containing China militarily. It's it's also about, as it always has been, you know, Obama was doing the same thing, encircling China economically. So the big problem they had with Trumpism was that he cancelled the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which would have built up a lot of very profitable trading relationships uh, with Southeast Asia, leaving China out. Um, I think they want to achieve some of that. But I can't see that if uh, Lula makes deals with China, as he certainly will, that that's going to get him into trouble at all. And also, even working with Iran, you know, his support for the Iranian government during his um, time in office before was a bit controversial. Bush didn't like it and so on. But uh, I think that Biden would like to restore the Iran deal. They they don't really want to have a, a constant hostile standoff with the um, Islamic Republic. And I don't think Lula got in too much trouble with, uh, with that before. So, um, you know, I think that in general, an independent foreign policy is probably fine. Brazil is a hugely important country. It's one of the most populous countries in the world. It's one of the most, it's one of the most important economies in the world. They aren't just a client state that you can just push around, you know? I suppose their, their sort of geographical distance also perhaps insulates them from pressure to an extent. You know, it doesn't seem quite so important for Brazil to take the US line that it might do for a, for a country in Asia, say. Lula's victory has, has of course, been seen as a, a great environmental victory. And, you know, I think I saw someone on Twitter saying, you know, Lula winning is much better than anything we can expect from the upcoming COP meeting. 
Lula has promised zero deforestation. He's not put a date on that, and it's unclear how that would be done. Bolsonaro, of course, has gutted the agencies responsible for environmental enforcement. And as you've described, you know, the, the land grabbers and loggers and so on have been very much emboldened under his, his government. How much of a victory do you think that is? And what do you think the prospects are for preserving the Amazon? No, I mean, I, I'm I'm pessimistic about that, but I'm I'm not going to be dismissive of what uh, Lula has committed to doing. I think he's talked about stopping illegal logging, stopping uh, new mining, land grabbing. In other words, limiting the damage that was done under Bolsonaro. If your choice is between absolute breakneck pace of ecological destruction now and staving it off somewhat so you can buy time, well, I'll, you know, I'll buy the time. Um, and so I'm, I'm not optimistic about his capacity to s- substantially roll back the damage that's being done to the Amazon and to the rainforests over the four years that he has. As I say, he's going to be a, a, a much weaker president anyway. But that breathing space means that indigenous people can organize. It means that the working class base of the um, Workers' Party can organize. It means that in terms of international campaigns, there will be one more ally for those who... And, you know, I, I, I'm wary of calling Lula an ally given his politics, but if he if he's sort of stands up against, uh, you know, some ecologically destructive policies, that will strengthen the international alliances to deal with climate change. So it's a small win, but I'll take it. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.